Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 28 of the Dogado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. As you know, this season has been devoted to better understanding how our cultural and ethnic identity, our church traditions, and personal experiences impact our theology and our understanding of the Bible. Last week, we spoke with Dr. Vince Bantu at Fuller Seminary about ancient African Christianity and the formation of Christian theology that emerged in Africa. We also talked about the importance of diverse representation in church leadership to help build a more inclusive church and to help all members feel like they belong. Today, we're gonna to continue digging into this theme of belonging and specifically address how our sexual identities might cause us to feel excluded from our church and what we can do to make our spiritual homes a more safe and inclusive sanctuary for all, no matter your gender expression or sexual identity. And in today's show, we're honored to learn from Dr. Gregory Coles about his love of writing, why he pursued a PhD in English literature, how he came out to his loved ones and his church, why he wrote a book entitled Single Gay Christian, how he's dealt with criticism from Christians about his sexual identity, how he's processed pain and grief while coming out, his thoughts on friendships that have painfully ended, and what we can all do to better love and support our LGBTQ plus loved ones. And at the end of our conversation, he shares helpful advice on how to find a church home when you don't feel like you quite fit in. Dr. Gregory Coles is the author of a brand new book entitled, No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation, which is published by InterVarsity Press. His book explores the ways his cultural identity and his sexual identity has made it difficult for him to feel like he belonged. I pray this conversation encourages and empowers all of us to become more loving and more compassionate, especially towards our LGBTQ community. And for all my LGBTQ friends and loved ones listening in, I pray that you'll be blessed and encouraged by this conversation and that you would find safety, love, and belonging in a spiritual home. You are deeply loved. You can catch the full archive of past shows as well as video chats from these podcasts at my blog at mikedelgado.org. Here's our conversation. So I wanted to begin by even asking you about your writing journey. Um, I read that you like fell in love with like Shakespeare early on reading Hamlet at age eight. And I was an English lit major too as an undergrad. And so I like resonated with you immediately. So I'd love to hear about like you like discovering literature, uh, what drove your passion and then actually going through with the pursuing degrees and a PhD in literature. Yeah, I think if I trace my love of literature early, the first books that I remember reading on my own, moving beyond like, you know, C-spot, C-spot run into things with a bit more depth. I remember reading the Chronicles of Narnia relatively young. And I think those were hugely formative for me in a number of ways. One was that they, they sort of took on a life of their own for me. And so, so much of the subsequent theology that I developed, so much of my subsequent view of what makes for a good story, so much of my view of what makes life meaningful and worth living would all kind of in some way come back around to like, I can relate it to Narnia in some way. I think because the books had entered my psyche so young that they just became part of my way of thinking. And so... I think that that sparked an early love of I love a good story. I love when the language is beautiful. I think I was a, a linguistically precocious child in a variety of ways, uh, which having three older siblings helps with that. You know, the fact that by the time I was like six, my brother Jeff was already studying for the SAT. And so he would bring his SAT vocabulary words to the dinner table and be like, OK, family, let me quiz you on SAT vocabulary. <laughs> so I got a nice early start with big vocabulary. And I think all of that then worked together to make me feel like as a relatively young kid, I was like, I should read some of this fancy literature I've heard so much about. And so I think that's why I picked Hamlet when I was eight, was that I had heard things about Hamlet. And so my first entry into Hamlet was that I started memorizing the famous soliloquy, to be or not to be. 
and I actually memorized the whole thing wow. and recited it at a homeschool co-op that we did. There were a bunch of homeschoolers that would get together and like demonstrate what they had been learning. So I just memorized Hamlet's soliloquy and went to the homeschool co-op and was like, allow me to recite. So <laughs> I, I was I was a great child. You would have That's loved awesome. me as That is a child. so cool. The kids must have been like, what am I witnessing right here? Oh, dear. Yeah, I was I was distinctive, if nothing else. Um, so, so, so from there, then I was like, well, I should read the whole play that goes with this story. So I read it. I'm not sure. I, certainly I didn't understand all of it at the age of eight. There were some things I was a little confused about, but generally I was like, these are some fancy words. I like these words. I think, uh, so, th so that continued, you know, I enjoyed reading and I ad advanced through the literature I had available to me. The way that I ended up studying English in the long run uh, well, when I when I moved uh, from Indonesia back to the United States to do my undergraduate work, I studied communication because I knew that I loved writing and I wanted something that was adjacent to language. But I was a bit scared of an English degree because I was like, I don't want somebody else to tell me how to write. Mm. I just want to read interesting writing and think interesting thoughts and then see what happens. So I studied communication with uh, with an emphasis in rhetorical theory, kind of the philosophy of how language works in society. And then after that, uh, I went and started working for a church for one year. And during the year that I was working for that church, I started to feel like, oh man, I missed the academy. Like I loved working for a church, um, but I really missed being part of big conversations and reading things that were hard to understand and I had to grapple with them. And it just wasn't quite the same working with a youth group, you know, it was a different set of intellectual activities. So, uh, so I started thinking about, could I pursue higher ed? Uh, and when I looked into the, the higher ed programs that I was best suited for, I discovered that I was pretty well suited for a program in English, uh, bringing in some rhetorical theory, um, but bringing in some, some thoughts in literature. Uh, also, Going back to Narnia, I just wanted to be C.S. Lewis. Like my whole life, I'd just been like, the ideal thing that a human being can become is C.S. Lewis. And I knew Lewis had a PhD in English. So I was like, if one wants to become C.S. Lewis, one receives comparable training. Now, having gotten the PhD, I can confirm it has not made me into C.S. Lewis, <laughs> alas. But there's still time for later. <laughs> you know what? Uh, it's funny because um, growing up in a Christian home, like C.S. Lewis was like, yes, he's like my hero. And then because I love literature, like I got every C.S. Lewis I could get, like book I could get, like especially his stuff like that he wrote on literature, like the stuff he wrote on Paradise Lost and um, medieval literature. Like I was consumed with it, um, especially because he had like a Christian identity with him. And um, so hearing your story, um, like that is so cool to see you like following through with that. So when you uh, entered, uh, especially the Ph.D. program, what was your research area? My research was primarily on uh, shifts in language and language polysemy. So moments where language means multiple different things, uh, especially in construction of group identity. Uh, so for instance, a good chunk of my research uh, and my very first English publication uh, had to do with the reclamation of derogatory terms. So that moment when a minority group takes a word that is being used to derogate them in some way and says, no, we're going to reclaim this, this word as a term of power. Uh, and so, I, so I've so i done work that sort of traces the distinction between, like, how is it that we have a word like black uh, as a marker of racial identity that begins derogatory and is now considered sort of universally fine? Anybody can use it without being derogatory. But then we also have a word like the N-word, uh, which is, is possible to use in the in-group as a way of expressing solidarity, but is still not accessible to those outside of the group, which is why I'm not going to say it on this podcast. Um, like, how do we trace both of those as forms of reclamation, but recognize the ways in which they play out differently sociopolitically? And how does that work for other groups of people? You know, we've got words in the sexual identity conversation, like gay and queer, but also faggot. You know, and we've got words used to derogate women over history and so on and so forth. So my research deals with the dynamics of how these words can operate in multiple linguistic spaces at the same time and do different things in society, depending on who's using them and how they're being used. Oh, that's fascinating. Is that available? Like, can someone like go and find your uh, that work? Yes. If you uh, if you Google Gregory Cole's The Exorcism of Language. Um, 
that was my that was my sort of leading oh, I love that title. The topic. Oh, I love thank that you very title. much. That is taken from Kenneth Burke, um, who's the rhetorical theorist who formed the basis of my dissertation. Um, so yeah, the exorcism of language. Uh, it's it's a fun time. That that's brilliant. How, how was that received by your professors? Like, what did they think? It went pretty well. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that I was universally regarded as brilliant in grad school, but I had my moments uh, where people were like, "Oh, Coles, you have some interesting things to say." And I think this paper was one of those moments where I started writing it, and the people I showed it to were like, "This is fascinating. We think you could get this published," which is why it then became my my first academic publication. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I totally want to read that now. The way you described it—that sounds so interesting. So. Tell me about like your journey from uh, writing for academia, doing really important research, and and then going into deciding to write for the Christian market specifically. And yeah, tell me about that journey. Yeah, it was a very accidental journey. Uh, it, it began so before I started graduate school. Uh, I was already doing some writing with the hope that I could eventually publish a, a book for the general market. And what I was working on early on uh, was fiction. So I wrote a novel while I was an undergrad, and I was shopping that novel around to agents. And right as I finished undergrad and started working for a church, I signed with an agent. So I had a literary agent who was shopping this novel around to publishers. We never successfully landed the novel with any publishers. And so uh, I, so my agent and I, you know, we sort of regrouped and said, well, okay, we can't publish that novel. What shall we do next? And I was like, I'll work on another novel for you. I have another idea. I think I can make this work. So I, so I've been planning to work on a new novel. Of course, once I started grad school, it, it got a little busy. And so I had carved out the summer beyond uh, the summer between my master's program and my PhD program. Uh, I carved out a chunk of time and I said, I'm going to work on a novel this summer. I, I began trying to work on it and I would sort of have some false starts and send them to my agent and he would look at them and say, well, you're still a good writer, but this feels sort of weird and stuck and not quite right. And so I just ended up in like this terrible writer's block. And I, I went to my agent and I was like, Mike, what do I do? My writer's block is awful. And he said, Coles, here's what you got to do. You just sit down in front of a blank page and you write whatever comes out of you, and no one will ever have to see it. And I was like, oh, this is sound writerly advice. I will do it. So I sat down at the computer, and I wrote what poured out of me. And it just so happened that at the time he gave me this instruction, I had, within the last three months, come out as gay to uh, my pastor at my church, uh, to my parents, and I had also written an email to a guy named Dr. Wesley Hill, um, who was a celibate gay Christian author who I greatly admired. Uh, and he had just written me back. And so I was in the throes wow. of all of those conversations. So when I sat down in front of the blank page and wrote whatever poured out of me, what poured out of me was my own musings about what it looked like to want to be a follower of Jesus in the context of having a particular experience of sexuality in the context of 21st century America, where both of those things are rather contested. And so, so, so yes, so, so my, so my agent's advice to just write something down turned into a journal entry, which became a long journal entry, which became a lot of long journal entries paired back to back. And at some point I sat back and I was like, oh my, it seems I have written a book. Which is not which is not the recommended way to get into Christian <laughs> publishing, but it's what happened in my case. Wow. Yeah. And because you think about like when constructing a book, like you are pitching your idea, you're like constructing like the pair, the uh, how you're going to organize the book. And in your case, it was just raw emotion. You're processing how you're feeling throughout this really important time in your life. And it's almost like therapy, like coming to that blank blank page and just like, here it is. Here's everything. Raw feelings. And to me, that's like the most amazing, like your writing is so emotional and so engaging. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like every one of your essays, they stand on their own. Like it's important to read everything, to see the full journey and to see your thought process. But each essay truly stands on its own. And I, to me, whenever I read, like when I was reading your essays, 
just the way you even end your essays. Like I want it. I wanted more. Like you leave me wanting so much more. And so that's always to me a sign of a really great writer is when I finish an essay and I'm like, that's not fair. You can't end it there. And then I'm like, okay, I, I, I got to get to the next essay now. So I, uh, the way that you write, um, I'm so happy that you decided to take the raw emotion, take all this, this very personal, I mean, you have tremendous courage as well to take this vulnerable uh, writing that uh, could have been just conversations with a therapist that stayed there. And you know what I mean? Like, those are the kinds of conversations I'll have with my therapist. Like, this stays in this room between me and you. I have that trust. And you're not going to judge me. <laughs> it's another thing to, like, take that, like, that emotion, that pain, and then put it onto a page. And then for you to be able to write it in such a poetic and beautiful way that resonates with so many of us. Uh, so thank you for doing that. And um, as I was reading your your latest book, No Longer Strangers, uh, you talk about in one of your essays about that period where um, you had finished your book, uh, your first book, and you realize, okay, I haven't um, told very many people in my church uh, about being gay, and um, this will be a surprise to them. I should probably let them know, but it's like, should I let them know or should I just let them discover it? Like, it's not really their business, but I'm writing a book. And so you're like, you're talking about that whole, uh, that whole difficult situation is in your mind, like wrestling. Well, this is no one, you know, should I let them know? Should I let them? And then you talk about that Facebook post. And I got to tell you, as you were like describing that moment, I was getting anxious, like reading. I want to encourage everyone to read that chapter because I was getting very emotional and anxious for you as I'm reading you talking about that Facebook post and you're like building it up. And I'm like, and then, then you actually share the Facebook post in the book. And I, and I just, I'm reading this going how much thought and empathy and compassion you had as you were trying to explain uh, your feelings and also not to uh, separate or hurt anybody else in the way that you were coming out, like the way that you did, it was so compassionate so beautiful and then also like let's create a safe space like let's be very careful christian in the comment or anybody who's reading this like be very careful so um can you talk about like that part because you have this book coming out and and now you are wrestling with who do i tell and how do i tell it yeah what so what i did when i after I signed the contract to publish uh, this first book, which was called Single Gay Christian, after I signed the contract for Single Gay Christian, I had approximately, I want to say it was 14 or 15 months from contract signing to publication day, uh, which meant that I had uh, maybe six or seven months before the pre-order link for the book went live. And so I could sort of share that publicly with everybody. And so, so the first thing I did after I signed the contract, I sat down and I made a list of slightly over 100 people in my life wow. who I felt like these are people that I am close enough with that I feel like it would be good for me to have some kind of personal interaction with them um, before I say, hey, look, here's a book with half of my face on the cover and the words single and gay and Christian, which collectively leave very little to the imagination. Um so, so I, so I sat down and made a list and, and figured out like, okay, who do I want to, who do I want to connect with before that happens? Um, and so because I had lived my life kind of all, all over the place, um, some of those were phone conversations, some of them were emails that I sent, and then some of them were conversations that I sat down in person and talked to people. Um, and it was kind of like playing relational roulette every time. Um, the majority of those conversations went really well. I was blessed to have a lot of really great people in my life, um, but not all of them went well. And the fact that they didn't all go well made it all the more terrifying. And so after after that uh, after that after working through that list of people, then I then I thought through, okay, how am I going to sort of make some kind of public declaration about this? Because obviously the book will be a public affair, so I should I should say something. And, and I wanted to navigate, I appreciate so much what you said about uh, existing in the tension between wanting to show love to a lot of different groups of people. Um, because what I wanted so much to try to do uh, was to, 
to continue to express love and respect uh, for folks in the Christian communities that I had been part of and continued to be part of, um, even though some of those folks I knew would be uncomfortable hearing about my experience of sexual attraction, um, even if they and I happen to agree on certain questions about sexual ethics, about what we're called to do as we steward our bodies as followers of Jesus. And then on the other side of the conversation, I wanted to show respect to people who didn't follow Jesus or who had a different set of convictions about what Jesus had to say about sexual ethics. Uh, and I wanted to uh, not not unnecessarily distance myself from other people who identify as gay, even if we don't share the same sexual ethics. And so I was thinking to myself, it's less hard for me to have a single conversation just with somebody who uh, shares with me a, a Christian identity and has some issues with the fact that I'm gay or it's a little easier for me to just have a conversation with somebody who's gay, doesn't share my sexual ethics, but to try to have a conversation with everyone simultaneously, to try to say to everyone simultaneously, to speak in a vocabulary that everybody understands. Um, which I think, going back to what we were saying earlier about some of my academic work, this problem of how do we use language that works for the kinds of things we want it to do in the world as we recognize that who is speaking and to whom they are speaking always fundamentally changes the way that language is received and what it has the power to do. So it was, it was definitely uh, tricky and terrifying trying to figure out like, what does it look like to faithfully walk a line that actually opens up space to, to talk well about who Jesus is and about what is true of the world with, with people all across those spectra of, of belief and experience. Um, so yeah, the, the Facebook post itself, I, I labored over that thing. I, I prayed and cried over that thing. Uh, and then, and I remember when the evening came that I finally decided to put it up, I had it, I copied and pasted it out of a, uh, an email draft where I'd been saving it forever. I put it into Facebook I just hit post and then I slammed the lid of my laptop down and I just shoved it away. I sat back against my chair and I breathed really, really oh. fast as if I was climbing the climb hill of a roller coaster. And I think it took less than a minute before my phone started buzzing. Um, and I don't think my phone stopped buzzing for like mm. the next, I don't know how many hours. The, the way you describe it in your book, that essay is beautiful. Like the way that you describe it and all the raw emotion, like I said, it was so tense. I was reading mm -hmm. your, your words and I, I was feeling anxious and getting panicky. And then, and then when I shared the, and then when you wrote the post, I was like envisioning all the thought and empathy and compassion mm -hmm. you had and developing it and like re-editing it and making it sound you're like trying to read it as a Christian who maybe doesn't understand uh, someone who's gay. You're trying to understand, you know, you're reading it as somebody who's gay uh, who maybe doesn't share your se sexual ethic, right? You're trying to like, you're wrestling with that. I thought you did a beautiful job composing that. And then in your book and what you just said, when you like click submit and you just shut the laptop, I was like, what? I was like, were you thinking? I was like, you, you what? Like I would be like staring at the screen, just like, scared <laughs> kind of like like this and then and you were like you were like done you're like i'm done like you just it was like almost like a moment of like i'm done like you close the laptop it is out there let it be and um so that was my reaction when i read like you just shut the laptop because i was like i wouldn't be shutting the laptop i'd be like staring at the screen <laughs> you know i think in retrospect i'm surprised that i did that by myself it, it sort of makes sense in the sense that I feel like a, a lot of significant moments in that journey I did by myself just because I was like, I don't even know what I feel. And if somebody else is here, I'm going to feel the pressure to tell them what I feel, but I haven't figured it out yet. So I would have nothing to say, but it, it certainly, th there was, there was a lot going on in my heart and mind at that moment to sort it through. Um, yeah. Did, did, um, as you as you look back at the initial responses from the various communities that were reading it, did you feel more judgment from the Christian communities about coming out versus those of the LGBTQ community? I'm just curious, like the judgment or criticism you're receiving. Yeah, the the criticism was definitely more and harsher from uh, Christian folks than it was from uh, non-Christian LGBTQ folks. Um, and, and that 
in my experience, when I've talked to other other folks who exist in a similar space, um, other celibate gay folks, for instance, um, or folks who uh, are in what they would call mixed orientation marriage, um, who you know would identify themselves as gay or same sex attracted, but have chosen to be in an opposite sex marriage. Um, the story that I hear almost universally, not totally universally, but as a general rule of thumb, uh, is that almost all of us get more, more and more harsh criticism from Christian conservatives trying to convince us that we do not actually, in fact, love Jesus, mm. um, which, which I think was, I don't know if that was a surprise to me or not. I think uh, in my imagining, I was so paranoid that everybody was going to hate me. Uh, that I think I was refreshingly surprised um, when uh, most of my LGBTQ friends who didn't share my sexual ethic were like, oh, we can respect that journey. Um, and I was also, I should say, I was refreshingly surprised at the number of Christian folks who I'd been concerned might not be uh, open to understanding what I was saying, who did in fact show a great deal of understanding, compassion, even willingness to begin to think differently as a result of having heard my story. Um, but I, I did not anticipate the degree to which those proportions would be unbalanced. The degree to which the people who claimed to be following Jesus often turned out to be the ones who made it most difficult for me to actually mm. follow Jesus. Mm. For the Christians listening in who maybe in the future might have a loved one come out to them, what would be some things you would say to them in how they should be thinking about their response so that they are filled with empathy and compassion and love and really seeking seek and not um saying something that's well meant but said totally wrong yeah yeah i i mean one thing i often say like especially in the in the moment of coming out but also afterward is i don't think it can be overstated how important it is to reaffirm for people that you love them and and i think uh, for some of us, that can feel like, oh, well, obviously I love them. Uh, and yet for the person who's coming out, that information doesn't necessarily feel obvious. Because I think when you're in the closet and somebody tells you that they love you, you sort of hear that statement with an asterisk mm. that makes you wonder, would they still love me if they also had this additional information? And it's an asterisk that also carries with it everything that you have ever heard that person say before about gay people. Uh, which is usually not an entirely positive set of things, uh, or at least it, it wasn't among some of the circles that I was coming out in. Uh, and so it was incredibly helpful, incredibly healing, uh, just to be reminded uh, at the beginning of the conversation and the end of the conversation and 17 times in the middle of the conversation mm. uh, that that the the fact that I had shared uh, that I was gay didn't change the fact that I was deeply loved by the person I was talking to. Um, so, so that I think is, is a place to begin. Uh, a, another thing that I would say, and this I think especially comes from really well-meaning people who in many ways, I think have a lot of good instincts to do some things really well. Uh, there can be an assumption that exists uh, among uh, Christians I'll speak especially for evangelical Christian communities because those are the communities I have been most part of. I think this is true for other Christian communities, but I won't uh, I won't claim to critique everyone equally when my experience has not been equally doled out across them all. Uh, there can be a tendency to hear the story uh, of a person like me who's saying, here's my experience of attraction to the same sex. Here's how I have chosen to... Uh, follow Jesus, either in celibacy or in the pursuit of opposite sex marriage, um, uh, to share that story and then uh, have have a straight person respond in a way that indicates that they think that the ideal for our lives would somehow be for us to end up straight. Mm. Or perhaps they assume that that's what we want um, uh, to, to refer to the move towards straightness as a kind of healing uh, or to refer to uh, the experience of attraction to the same sex as sexual brokenness. Um, and to be clear, uh, I do think that I am sexually broken as a person who is oriented toward the same sex. Uh, however, I also think that every human being with an experience of sexuality that comes after the fall of humankind is also sexually broken. Um, and I think it's 
it's problematic, I think, uh, for people who have a broken heterosexual orientation to say to people with a broken homosexual orientation, ah, we feel sorry about your sexual brokenness, mm -hmm. and we would really prefer if you were broken the way that we are broken. Uh, there, there, there was a moment, I, there's a story that I tell in my first book about a time when I was young uh, and thinking that the ideal was that I would become straight, uh, that I, I ran across a picture of a scantily clad woman. And I was like, you know, I'm told that if I were straight, which is what I'm supposed to be, I would like feel things after this picture. Like I would want to lust after this picture. So I took the picture and I was like, I'm going for it. <laughs> so I'm taking the picture, like trying to lust after the picture, uh, which did not work. I mean, for all the good it did, I might as well have been staring at an office supplies poster. And yet the, the, the logic that underlay that moment was the logic that said somehow the fact that I lacked the temptation to lust after women was itself a bad thing, that it would be preferable if I had the capacity to be tempted to lust after a woman. One of the most revolutionary shifts in my thinking uh, throughout the course of my spiritual life has been to recognize that the fact that I don't experience certain kinds of sexual temptation as a same-sex oriented person is actually a remarkable gift mm. and that I can celebrate that gift, that I can celebrate the fact that it has never crossed my mind, except in a few moments where I was trying to make it happen. It has never crossed my mind to think of my sisters in Christ as anything other than dearly loved sisters, that the idea of making them an object of my sexual desire never occurred to me. Um, and so I think uh, if, if someone comes out to you and you're straight and, and your, your instinctive response is to say, oh, wouldn't it be better if you could be like me? Um, I, I think, I think that is unhelpful. Um, I also think it's, it's unhelpful too. uh, even if you feel like, oh, because I want this person to be able to get married, wouldn't that also be nicer? Um, I think it's also unhelpful to assume that marriage is the best telos of the Christian life, that there is a way in which single people will always be deficient, will always be second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Um, and so I think to recognize the ways in which we are enculturated to want other people to have the same kinds of callings that we do if we're married, to want them to also be called to marriage because we think marriage is great, and even to want them to sin like we do, to prefer the people mm. who have the sorts of sexual temptations that we are most comfortable with. I think to instead say, hey, Jesus has everybody on a somewhat different journey, and it's not my job to wish that this person's journey were more like mine. Nor is it my job to take my own judgment and try to uh, paste it upon somebody else's judgment and supplant myself for them. My job is simply to point them in the direction of Jesus while they journey with him on a journey that will likely be quite unlike my own. Um, and so I think to have, to have the posture of openness and humility that recognizes that is such a gift to your gay friend. Mm. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> you, you, uh, in your in your latest book, No Longer Strangers, you tell uh, a story um, where someone that you weren't super close with, but you had known for a while, like, let's have a conversation at a coffee shop. And you describe that moment and you're like, oh, no, I think I know what's coming. But you were so gracious to like even honor that request. So first of all, I want to say like, oh, my gosh, like the grace and love that you had to even go knowing that this probably might hurt me like. I saw Christ in that moment, like willing to be hurt. Um, and I was just like pain. I was like in pain, like reading that. And then like the kind of the callous comments that were made to you in that conversation. And I thought what was really ironic was like using the Sodom and Gomorrah story, which was really about like a sin of people that were not hospitable, people that were not welcoming. Like that was the sin that Ezekiel calls out, Right. Like, but that, that was the example given to you. And I was like, wait, wait, who's being in unhospitable here? Who is like not being welcoming and not bringing people together? Like, like giving that, that oh, was like, like the worst, preaching. you know what I mean? Like when I, when I was reading that, I was so upset about that. Cal Cause I know exactly I've been in those circles. So I've like, it bothers me a lot to see this kind of callous heart. And in their mind, they think they're doing the right thing. Like they're calling out something that they think is a sin and, but they have no, 
like they're using the wrong verses, <laughs> you know, and, and also they have the wrong heart and they're not even going there to even understand someone's perspective. And so I, I wanted to share that with you that I, when I was reading that, I was like, I saw you as a Christ coming in, like willing to be hurt, to let this person share something that they felt they needed to share. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for that, for that perspective. I, I, I feel like it was it was very important for me in that moment, and I think it continues to be important to me um, to to want to take a posture that says, like, to the degree that I can honor people and assume the best about people, uh, even even when it's even when it's painful to me, um, and I think to recognize too, like in in the context of that particular relationship, I think the ways that our relationship was ultimately severed. Um, like there was pain on both sides of that equation. You know, it was painful for me. I think it was painful for them too. Um, and, and I think it was so important for me. I had to rewrite that chapter a couple of times um, because the first time I wrote it, I, I wrote it with some residual anger, um, uh, some wanting to prove that I was right and the other person was wrong and that that was the way everyone must read it. Um, and, and, and I had to, I had to go back and, 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 try to rewrite it with the recognition that the, that the most important thing that I needed to remember, I don't know what everybody else needs to remember about that story, if they need to remember it at all. But the most important thing that I needed to remember uh, was that even after, even after we had become one another's heartbreakers, we were still people who I hope and trust will get to share eternity together. Um, that there's a sense in which whatever mm. temporary severing of relationship we have now that will ultimately be healed. And the important question will not be who was right or who was wrong in the moment. Um, the important question will be whether we're eager enough in our pursuit of Jesus to ultimately be delighted at all the people he brings us back in relationship with at the end. Um, I think in, in, my, in my emotionally less healthy moments, there are some people who I feel not particularly excited to ultimately share the kingdom of God with. And those are probably the people who I need to be most mm. eager about loving um, because I think they're, they're people that Jesus longs for me to express his, his love to. And I, and I hear so much like just love from you in that statement. Cause as I was reading, especially your chapters on friendship and friendships that get severed friendships that are hurt people that you loved, something happened, they hurt you or you hurt them. And then, there's like that, that rift that never gets repaired. And then you kind of go your separate ways and you still, the way that I got to say that the way it touched me, the way you talked about those friendships, mm. especially those who would hurt you and then how you envision like this eternal perspective, like, Oh, I, even though they've hurt me, I, I want to see them. I want to be reconciled to them and in, in, in glory in heaven um, and whatever that looks like, like I want to see healing ultimately, um, even though on this earth, our relationship is fractured, it'll never be the same again. So the way that you, you frame that was actually super helpful to me as I thought, as I was thinking about some of my past friendships that have been hurt and they'll never be the same again. And the way that you also were like focusing in on like the, the beautiful moments that you had with those people. And that's what you focus on, the beautiful things. Like, oh, that can be replicated, you know, in heaven. Like all that beautiful stuff and all the hurt will, will go away. And so I want to just compliment you on, on the way that you, um, you've looked at those past relationships. It was very helpful to me. It was very healing to me to read that because I, I haven't had that perspective. Yeah, yeah, I'm so glad. And, and I think it's important to say too, like especially when we're talking about uh, places where there are times when folks do things uh, that really are harmful, not just to us, but but also to to other people. Um, and I think the the desire to pursue forgiveness, the the eagerness to see ultimate reconciliation, uh, doesn't mean that we deny uh, the importance of of responding and and rejecting uh, things things that are really unhelpful, especially things that are driving other folks away from from the kingdom of God. Um, so certainly I don't want to suggest, you know, like the answer is we all just sing Kumbaya, you know, like we never, uh, and, and yet I think, yeah, I, I think, uh, to be, 
I think to, to have deep conviction about the ways in which we want to uh, respond to and reject um, things that are things that are problematic and hurtful that folks are doing. Um, and yet to not let that activist impulse, as it were, um, turn us into people whose hearts uh, cease to be oriented toward uh, love and forgiveness of the other. Um, I, th- I think it's a it's a sort of an impossible tension to walk, as it were, um, which I think all the best ones are um, that, that we live. We live in this kind of tension between needing to call out what is wrong, needing to call out what is abusive, needing to call out what is what is harmful, what is damaging. And yet at the same time to say, like, the arms of Christ are so wide open that they're even eager to receive back the one who harms. Um, so that I never become in any kind of way a sort of pharisaical person who is convinced of my own rightness and convinced of the other's wrongness and who draws the boundaries of the kingdom of heaven as if I and my people are all in and they and theirs are all out of it. Mm. Amen. That when I was reading that, it 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 um it touched me and it also pointed to my own sin of resent when I get resentful uh for some of those things that have happened in my past with people. How, uh, for those who are listening in, who maybe feel like me, like someone has hurt them, um, in some way. And so that, that relationship will never be the same. And, um, but maybe, maybe they're struggling with that tension. They're struggling with feeling resentful, feeling very upset. You talk about rewriting that chapter again and again to kind of, uh, cause you were also feeling that anger and that re- uh, feeling resentful, and and I think that's super important to declare that and to write that and to express that. Um, but then you talk, you know, you obviously in your own spiritual journey and healing, you have come to a new place. But for those of us who are struggling right now with that resentfulness. One of the things that has been really helpful for me uh, in, in the way that I process particular moments in my life um, that become moments of hurt, moments of grief uh, is to be really purposeful about situating those moments as part of a part of a larger story. Um, and so to say, you know, th- this moment isn't just about the moment itself, um, but it, it is it is part of a grander story. It's, it's not the entire novel. It's just like a page of the novel. Um, and it's it's a page of the novel uh, that, that God is ultimately weaving together to make a story that's really grand and really beautiful. Uh, and, and I think that that conviction that the story as a whole is good, um, that that it's headed somewhere beautiful in the end, and that when from the end I look back on the moments that are most heartbreaking, uh, that I will see those moments through the lens of the happy ending, and the happy ending will be even happier because those moments were a part of the journey, as it were. Um, I, I think sometimes what I what I most need to do uh, is is take a step away from the individual moment that is vexing me, um, and, and just ask God to give me a fresh vision for for the bigger story. You know, the, the story that extends from Genesis one to Revelation twenty two that sort of brings us beautifully back into perfected relationship. Um, because I think often my my own reluctance or unwillingness to uh, to file things away graciously in my heart is often reflective of my inability to connect them to a bigger story and to trust that that bigger story is actually good. Um, so sometimes I just need to stop and say, do I actually believe that Jesus is good? Um, do I actually believe that the whole of my life fits into a grander whole and that that grander whole is a really good thing? Um, and if I believe those things, am I willing to have the humility to say, even though this moment feels sort of all-consuming to me right now, it's actually remarkably small in light of the things that I believe to be true. Um, because I think uh, I was I was uh, giving a talk recently about the difference between happiness and joy, and I made the argument that happiness uh, or sadness is about the emotion that we experience in the moment itself, um, and yet joy is about our perception of what is the nature of the whole story. Um, and so uh, this is why I think, or this is part of why the Bible can so eagerly encourage us to be joyful, even in the midst of very sorrowful things, 
is that we experience our individual moments of sorrow in the context of continuing to know, continuing to trust that the larger narrative they fit within is still fundamentally a good and beautiful and hopeful narrative. Mm. What a beautiful way to put that. And man, I need to tap into that joy, like that that vision of joy you're talking about. Because sometimes I, I focus in on the moments, which can be heartbreaking, and I could stay there for a while, <laughs> which is not good. Uh, but I love the way that you kind of are expressing like, um, and, and I also like the illustration you just told about like one page in the novel, like that, what a beautiful way to like view friendships, like all these other good moments that happened along the way. There could have been a, a point where it breaks, but that was one point in the book. Um, so thank you for sharing that. That's very, that's very, very helpful. Um, before we go, I wanted to ask you about, um, belonging and then in relationship with church membership and finding a church and how hard it is for some of us who maybe in our own theological journeys or our own journeys of coming out um, that we may struggle with finding a church. And you described it really well in your book where you said, you know, maybe I'm not, I'm not, I'm too progressive for the conservatives and I'm too conservative for the progressives and that tension, like you, you write it so well. And I was like reading it. Going, oh yeah. Yes. Yes. Like, what do you do when you don't feel like you can belong because of your identity? Um, because of whatever it is, you're at that church and you're feeling like, and again, you do such a great job of explaining like um, for certain things when you're just meeting people, I'm not going to be sharing certain viewpoints when you're just meeting somebody. Like you're just like, Hey, how's it going? Where do you go to eat? And what Netflix shows do you like, you know, and what, but then like the things that are really important to who you are, like you are going to be careful on when you share that, but that's an important part of your identity. And you don't want to be hurt again. Like, cause the moment they find out, like I just built a little bit of a relationship and now it's like, it's over already. And so you want to like find a community where you can belong, but it can be very hard. Yeah, I, I have found it really, really helpful in, in my own life. Uh, well, I'll, I'll say, first of all, uh, I have been uh, remarkably lucky so far um, to have not switched churches. I've, I've been living in the same town and, and at the same church since I came out as gay. Um, and so one of the, you know, one of the pieces of my biography that will make my next church hunting experience a little more complicated um, was not particularly at issue last time I was hunting for a church eight years ago. And uh, there is a sense in which as I look forward to, you know, what it, what is the next time that I'll, that I'll need to be church hunting and how will I navigate that particular dynamic, you know, the conversation around sexuality. And yet, as you're saying, uh, that is a that is a bigger question that applies not just to experiences of, of sexuality to sexual ethics, but it also applies to a whole host of experiential differences and theological differences. Um, and and I think it's important for us to ask uh, what kinds of uh, what kinds of difference can exist between me and a local church community. Uh, in such a way that we can still productively advance the kingdom of God together. Um, so, for instance, uh, I the church that I am currently part of uh, is is a church that uh, does not have uh, women in all roles of leadership. It is broadly speaking, it's a complementarian church, um, and uh, I am decidedly egalitarian in my theology. I think it's a great thing for women to be teaching and preaching and leading and doing all the things. And of, of course, you know, we need not get into the sidetrack about, you know, why I think there's a really incredible biblical case to be made for that, um, though I do think there is. And yet, you know, the question of uh, uh, to what degree, um, to what degree can I say, okay, I, I can be part of this community they can have me as part of them, even though we think differently on on an important issue. Um, and and that's one of those issues that I will say, you know, I think next time I look for a church, I would ideally like it to be a church that agrees with me on the question of uh, what the Holy Spirit has empowered women to do, um, because I can't wait to be all the more vocal about my eagerness to see women, in fact, uh, expressing their gifts uh, and, and helping to advance the kingdom of heaven in that way. Um, uh, and yet, um, I have been able in my own context, uh, to, in my own sometimes subtle and sometimes less subtle ways, 
um, helped nudge the women around me to still exercise their leadership gifts, even when that's not encouraged by some of the other folks in their community. And, you know, to gently nudge the men in the community around me to just remind them that the women in their lives have more gifts than their theology may have given them room to know. Um, and, and, and I have found that in this community, that is a, that is a difference that though it exists has not, has not kept me from being able to participate effectively in the work of the kingdom of God. Um, I think there, I think there are places where our differences do create uh, sorts of tension that require us to uh, be apart from one another. Um, I think those differences can be theological. I think they can be relational. Um, but I think it's important for the question that we ask when we seek out a church community to not be primarily how can I find people who think like me, with whom I will be relationally comfortable? Uh, how can I find the kind of church I would have imagined for myself? Uh, and to instead ask what I think is the somewhat more pressing question, how can I find a community where my presence among them will make me better equipped to serve Jesus and will make those I am among also better equipped to serve Jesus? Uh, how can we collectively uh, communicate the love of God in a way that is better together than we could have independent from one another? Um, and I think if we can if we can ask that other-oriented question instead of the self-oriented question, uh, it may still be a bear of a time figuring out uh, the best local church community to be part of. Um, but I think it becomes somewhat more possible because it becomes somewhat less about us. Uh, and I think the story usually turns out better when we recognize that it is really not primarily about us at all. Hey, man. Oh, you're preaching to me, Greg. Oh, yeah. That's my problem. You you nailed it right there. Thank you for preaching to me. Uh, <laughs> that's a sin area of mine. Thank you for reframing the question for me. That's super, super helpful. Um, and Greg, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. What a treat. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Dr. Gregory Coles about his latest book entitled No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation, which is published by InterVarsity Press. I'm curious how this conversation with Gregory Coles on finding belonging has impacted you. You can message me on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, or Twitter at Dogato Podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at MikeDogato.org. Next time, we're going to learn from Dr. Darian Lockett, about his research and latest book focused on early Christian theology and practice with a close analysis of the seven Catholic epistles. Dr. Lockett is a brilliant scholar, a fantastic pastor, and one of the most humble Christian men that I know. So that's next time. Oh, and if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care, and we'll chat more next time.